The reading from the Common English Bible, Luke 3, 7 through 18. Then John said to the crowds who came to be baptized by him, you children of snakes, who warned you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives and don't even think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? He answered, whoever has two shirts must share with the one who has none, and whoever has food must do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, teachers, what should we do? He replied, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. Soldiers asked, what about us? What should we do? He answered, don't cheat or harass anyone and be satisfied with your pay. The people were filled with expectation and everyone wondered whether John might be the Christ. John replied to them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than me is coming. I am not worthy to loosen the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks is in his hand. He will clean out his threshing area and bring the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the husks with a fire that can't be put out. With many other words, Jesus appealed to them, proclaiming good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pastor Clay Utley. I'm the co-pastor of Family Ministries here at First Free Methodist Church, and I'm so glad to be with you here this morning. Well, my, my parents, my mom and dad, are here visiting from Texas this morning, and my dad is a pastor as well, and I grew up uh, with him telling embarrassing stories about me when he preached so I thought I would take this opportunity to tell you a story about my father. Uh, I, I let him know I would tell the story, and he gave the thumbs up. Uh, but, and he confirmed that this is a, a true story. Um, so uh, this took place when I was a kid, probably elementary school. Uh, one weekend, my mom uh, went off to be a part of a church ladies' retreat, so she was gone for the weekend. So it was just me my little sister, Erin, who's four years younger than me, and my dad at home together. Um, Saturday rolls around. Erin, my little sister, is getting hungry, and so she picks up a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, and she brings it to my dad, and she says, Daddy, will you, will you make this for me? And my dad, he picks up this box of mac and cheese like he's never seen one before, and he starts reading how to make it, and he has this, uh, this very concerned look on his face. And for those of you who might not be familiar with Kraft mac and cheese, boxed mac and cheese, you may, maybe you're from that, that generation that came before boxed mac and cheese, or maybe you're from uh, this generation that is a little bit too healthy to eat boxed mac and cheese. I want to explain to you how it works. So you open up the cardboard box, you boil the pasta for about eight minutes, you drain the water, you add milk and the powdered cheese packet in, and you stir it, and voila! 
You have tasty mac and cheese. And so my, my dad is looking at this box, very concerned, a, a little bit confused, and he goes, I can't do this. <laughs> Who wants to go to McDonald's? <laughs> and we went to McDonald's. This is a true story. And, uh, and now, uh, fast forward like 20 years later, sometimes my wife is, is looking at me, and I know what she's thinking. She's thinking, Oh I, oh, I really wish that Clay would be more proactive about doing the dishes and not waiting until they are spilling off the counter and e- covering every service in the k- surface in the kitchen. Or, or she's thinking, oh, I just wish Clay would, would tidy up after himself a little bit better. And when I, whenever she's thinking those things, I, I comically say to her, look, I know, I know, uh, I, I know that I've still got a lot of growing to do, but think about all the men in my family. I am like version 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. I have evolved, right? Just think about how far I've come. Because, and it's true, uh, I, never, uh, I never saw my maternal grandfather wash a dish or cook a meal in all of the years that I knew him. And I just told you the story of how the box of mac and cheese was this very difficult adversary for my father. And, and I can tell Heather, you know, Heather, I pretty much survived college on box mac and cheese. I have really grown and changed, right? But here's the thing. This idea of, of us growing and changing and getting better, not perfect, but getting better, that's our sermon series, that's a very biblical concept. That is a very biblical idea that, that follows its way through the story of Scripture. In fact, in Colossians 3, Paul talks about this idea of, of taking off the old self. When we meet Christ, we take off the old self, we take off our sinful ways, and we clothe ourselves with Christ. We put on this new self, which is the image of Christ. And Paul says that there is a constant renewing that takes place. Paul is clear that when a person meets Jesus, they become new, right? They, they have a new self, but this new self is not a final state. It is a state of becoming, continual becoming, And as we walk with Christ, this renewing process continues as the Holy Spirit works in our lives and in our hearts. And John Wesley, uh, the father of the Methodist movement and kind of our, our spiritual grandfather, if you will, he had a word for this. He called it sanctification. And sanctification, we don't use this word very much, uh, but I think it's a good word Um, And this is what it means. It's the ongoing process of becoming more like Christ in our conduct and our character through the power of the Holy Spirit. The process of becoming more like Christ in our conduct and our character through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, John Wesley had a much simpler definition than this for sanctification. He defined it as uh, growing in love for God and other people. That's how how he defined it, right? And that's, that's true as well. But not all branches of Christianity are on the same page about this idea of sanctification. But for us, in the Methodist family tree, this is a significant part of who we are. And we need to live into this belief. And I'm I'm sure most everyone here has heard the term born again, 
right? You guys, we've, we've heard this born-again Christian, right? And, and that's true. That's a, that's a biblical term. Jesus talks about that when he has that conversation with Nicodemus. But when a person meets Christ, they have a change in their heart, and they really experience a new birth, and they are born again. But what we believe is God isn't done with us there. When we, when we meet Christ and we have a new birth, God is not done with us there. We as Methodists, as Wesleyans, we believe that God is still at work in our hearts and lives on a daily basis until our end of days on this earth, shaping us to be more and more like Christ. And this is, this is a key belief. We believe that we actually can get better because we believe the power of the Holy Spirit is constantly refining our hearts and our character to be more like Jesus. And this connects to our text this morning. John the Baptist is out preaching in the wilderness, and he is drawing a crowd. And this is what uh, Luke 3.3 3 says. John went throughout the region of the Jordan River calling for people to be baptized and to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and, God, and wanted God to forgive their sins. Now, this is interesting because uh, the text is very clear that John is in the wilderness. So he is drawing a crowd from the cities and towns into the wilderness, right? And, and he is preaching this baptism, getting, getting baptized to show that you have turned your heart and your life over to God, that you have, that you have changed your heart. And what's interesting is these are probably uh, almost exclusively Jewish people that are coming to hear this prophet John speaking. Um, but this idea of getting baptized to show that you turned your life over to God, um, that was actually something Gentile converts did when they were converting to Judaism. And Jewish people often, uh, they had all these ceremonial washings, but this baptism that John is saying this kind of baptism of repentance to show that there is this, this fruit of repentance in your life. Um, this is something that was normally reserved for Gentiles, but John is saying everybody needs to do this. Everybody, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, you need to turn your heart and life over to God anew. And as the people are getting baptized to show that their hearts and lives are turned over to God, John says uh, he has a little sermon for them, and it is anything but pleasant and courteous. Uh, Pastor Mark, I love, uh, wherever you are, I love how you read the text this morning. Oh, I'm so thankful for you. Um, John turns to the crowd and he says, you children of snakes, who warned you to escape the coming judgment? And he says, don't even, don't even think to, to rely uh, on the fact that Abraham is your father, God can actually make Abraham's children out of these stones on the ground. And then John goes on, there's an axe, and you are the tree. And the axe is about to chop down the tree, and if you don't produce fruit, God is going to chop you down and throw you into the fire. Now, that's not the, uh, that's not the positive and encouraging uh, Caleb, Spirit 105 sermons that... Uh, that we, are, that we are used to hearing, right? Can you imagine if you came this morning and I was like, you hard-hearted evil people, repent of your wicked ways and no, right? But, but for some reason, these people actually respond to this message of conviction that John is bringing them. They respond. 
They are, they are convicted. They are turning their hearts over to God. And this is what John is asking them to do. He says in Luke 3, 8, I think we've got a slide for this, produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And while this word repentance isn't used in the CEB version, um, it is used uh, in the NIV translation for this. And, uh, and my, my definition for repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards God. In fact, one time I heard uh, a rabbi give a Passover Seder, and he, I actually got, uh, uh, he, he's the first person that shared this definition with me. But he was saying in, the, in the, the, the Jewish idea of repentance is you are walking down a road and you are convicted that that is not the right path, right? That that is not the right path. That is not the path that God would want you on. So you literally change direction and walk down a different path, Right? Repentance is not just something that happens in your heart or your mind. It actually affects the steps that you take in your day-to-day life. And this is, actually, this is actually what John is talking about. He's saying, you know, you, uh, you think that you are following God, but really the, the steps that you take in your life need to be a witness to the change that God has made in your heart. Repentance is an internal conviction that leads to a change in outward action. And John actually, he, I, I love that part about, uh, you say that you're Abraham's children. Well, God can make children out of these stones. John is accusing his listeners of relying on their Jewish heritage as Abraham's children to avoid God's judgment. And John is saying, just because you know the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, And your spiritual father is Abraham doesn't mean that you are exempt from producing spiritual fruit. And the same could be said for us. Just because you met Jesus all those years ago, it doesn't mean that your life doesn't need to show the fruit that God is a part of it. Just because you became a Christian a few years ago doesn't mean God is done working in your heart And in your life, God still has work to do in all of us. And even though John literally led with that fire and brimstone speech, the people responded. And and I love this. Uh, The people respond, what should we do, right? They, They say that question three times. The crowd say that. The tax collectors say that. The soldiers say that. And to me... This is the most fascinating part of the text because the people are acknowledging that they want their lives to look like God has changed them. They want people to be able to see an outward manifestation of the inward change that God has done in them, and they are ready to take an active step. And so it says first in verse 10, the general crowd says, what should we do? And John says, well, be generous, If you have extra, if you have extra clothes, if you have extra food, share those with people who need them. Be generous with what you have. And then the tax collectors are there. The tax collectors worked with the Romans, and they generally collected more taxes than people actually owed, and they used that extra to line their own pockets. And these unethical tax collectors are even having a change of heart, and they say, what should we do? And John says, don't collect any more 
than you are authorized to collect. Be ethical and honest. And then the soldiers speak up. Now, we don't know exactly who these soldiers were. Uh, They were possibly Jews who were serving in Rome's kind of local military militia. Or they might have been mercenaries from another country like Syria, like a neighboring country that Rome had hired to keep the peace. But either way, the general Jewish population would have seen these soldiers as either traitors or oppressors. And even these soldiers are having a change of heart too. And they say, what should we do? And John says, don't cheat or harass anyone. Be ethical and just and be content with your wages. And what's, what's fascinating about this is John is looking at these two kind of despised groups of people, the soldiers and the tax collectors. And he doesn't say, tax collectors, your profession is inherently wrong. You need to find a new one. Soldiers, you are working for an oppressive foreign power that has invaded God's land. You need to find a new profession. John doesn't say that. John says, tax collectors, keep doing your job, but do it in a way that shows God has changed your heart and life. Soldiers, People have this negative perception of you, but show them that God has changed your heart and life by the way that you interact the people. Actually be a just protector. And what an interesting parallel for us as we could say, well, what is it that we are doing in our life and our day-to-day basis as you go about your life? How can we show, how can I show the fruit of repentance, this changed heart and changed life as I go about my daily business. The people responded, what should we do? Now, I'm going to get a little vulnerable with you this morning because uh, there, was a, there was a point in my life where I asked that question, what, what should I do? So about seven years ago, uh, about a year before we moved to Seattle, Heather and I were at a crisis point in our marriage. Uh, it was really a crisis point in our marriage. We did not have a lot of hope for the, about the future. Things were, things were not good. So we went to see a marriage counselor. And uh, this is a marriage counselor we, we kind of had a relationship with before. And we went to this marriage counselor and we said, all right, this is, you know, this is what's going on. This is, this is, look, we're just going to tell you all about our, our dysfunction and our brokenness. Will, will you help us? And uh, I remember thinking to myself, um, I'm not sure if I expressed it out loud, but I was just thinking, I was thinking like, okay, what do, what do I need to do to fix this? What do I need to do to fix this? Like, do I, you know, is it, do I, do I just need to, you know, just, just step up how I do the housework or do I, uh, do I just need to read my Bible more or pray more? Or maybe there's like a marriage book I can read. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of like expressing that, okay, what, 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 what do I need to do? And our counselor looks at me And she says, I think you need to join a 12-step recovery group. And I I was like, whoa, (laughs) I mean, I know I got got issues, but are you, I I, I don't, I don't think I have those kind of issues. I I don't think, she's like, no, you need to join a 12-step recovery group, right? And the 12 steps started out uh, connected to Alcoholics Anonymous, but now they have just been used, um, you know, all, all across the board in all kinds of situations for personal growth and healing. And she said, you need to join a 12-step recovery group. And I said, oh, okay. She's like, you need to go to one this week. 
And I said, uh, okay, I guess I, I guess I can do that. And I was like, uh, Heather, can you like remind me to go to one of those? Because apparently, like, I just somehow I forgot about Google or the fact that I have like a computer in my pocket with a calendar that can remind me about stuff. And the counselor's like, no, Heather will not help you. You will do this on your own. And so I started the journey seven years ago of working through the 12 steps of really acknowledging that, uh, that I'm not in control of my life, that God is in control, of really uh, trying to live my life in a constant state of surrender to the Lord, um, and of trying to discover really these, these kind of root issues that I had, this root brokenness that I had. And, uh, and really my experience, um, it, it really mirrors uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, where it says, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, and you will be healed, right? And as I, I went on this journey with God and with these other men who were, who were really trying to deal with their own brokenness, God really met me, and the Holy Spirit began to reshape my heart, and I began to discover things about myself. I discovered, uh, I used to think that uh, I was anything but a controlling person, right? Whatever, whatever the opposite of controlling, that was me. But as I, I started to look kind of down at, at my, my deep root issues, I realized that deep down, I, I kind of have this fundamental belief, which is wrong, which is flawed, where I believe that I know what's best for everyone in my life. Um, right? I know what's best for everyone in my life. And, and while I might not overtly uh, manipulate people or direct people or control people, so much of what I have done in my life has been trying to control people, my family, because I think I know what's best for them, right? Or I discovered that my default is when the going gets tough and there's, there's some kind of very uh, difficult or painful situation, my, uh, my default is to disconnect, to check out, right? To ignore it, to not deal with it. And as I began to work through the 12 steps, I began uh, to see these, these issues that were so deep down that I didn't even know about them, and God began to change my heart, and uh, the message today, I, I entitled it One Step Forward, Two Steps Back. We, normally you hear, uh, sorry, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back is the name of the message. But, uh, but normally, but see, I said it wrong because that's what we normally say, right? You hear that, one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, right? That's a, that's a net negative, right? One step forward, two steps back is actually a loss, but what we believe that what God can do through the Holy Spirit and through the reconciling work of Christ, we actually believe that it can be two steps forward and only one step back. And I have experienced that in my life. Um, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm still not done dealing with those issues of control. In fact, the 12th step is you continue, step number 12 is you continue to practice the 12 steps for the rest of your life and share what you've learned with other people, Right? And so uh, last weekend, we were doing this Easter egg hunt around our house after church. It was like a scavenger hunt where we had these clues for our five-year-old and our seven-year-old hidden all around the house where they're looking for their Easter basket. And I am trying to control my five-year-old and my seven-year-old and help them to, to have the most efficient scavenger hunt they can have. And my wife was like, what are you doing? This is supposed to be fun for them, right? Or this happened yesterday. Uh, whenever my wife is driving and I am sitting in the passenger seat, I always have a corrective for my wife because without fail, in my mind, I'm thinking, whichever route my wife takes 
is not the most efficient route, right? It doesn't matter which route she takes, it's always not the most efficient in my broken mind, right? And so I'm, I'm constantly having to allow God to renew my heart and my mind. And I think for us this morning, we need to ask that really tough question too. We need to ask that question, what should I do? What should we do in response to what God has done in my life, and if God still, if we believe deep down that God wants to help us get better, not perfect, but getting better, what should I do? In 1993, O'Shea Israel was a teenager in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 1993, O'Shea Israel was a teenager in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And one night at a party, O'Shea got into a fight, which ended when he shot and killed a teenager named Loramian Bird. Now, Loramian was the only child of Mary Johnson. This is a picture of of O'Shea and Mary Johnson. O'Shea shot and killed Loramian, the only child of Mary Johnson. And one dozen years later, after the murder of her son, Mary went to the penitentiary to visit the man who killed her son. And after serving 15 years, O'Shea was released from prison, and soon after, they recorded this story for NPR's StoryCorps program. I want you to listen to the words of Mary and O'Shea. You and I met at Stillwater Prison. I wanted to know if you were in the same mindset of what I remember from court, where I wanted to go over and hurt you, but you were not that 16-year-old. You were a grown man. I shared with you about my son. And he became human to me. You know, when I met you, it was like, okay, this guy is real. And then when it was time to go, you broke down and started shedding tears, and the initial thing to do was just try to hold you up as best I can. Just hug you like I would my own mother. After you left the room, I began to say, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. And I instantly knew that all that anger and the animosity, all the stuff I had in my heart for 12 years for you, I knew it was over, that I had totally forgiven you as far as receiving forgiveness from you sometimes i still don't know how to take it because i haven't totally forgiven myself yet it's something that i'm learning from you i treat you as i would treat my son and our relationship is beyond belief we live next door to one another yeah so you can see what i'm doing you know firsthand Mm -hmm. We actually bump into each other all the time, leaving in and out of the house. And you know, our conversations, they come from, boy, how come you ain't called over here to check on me in a couple of days? <laughs> you ain't even asked me if I need my garbage to go out. Uh-huh. I find those things funny because it's a relationship with a mother for real. Well, my natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. You know, you're going to college. I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married. Hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. 
just to hear you say those things and to be in my life in the manner that which you are is my motivation. It motivates me to make sure that I stay on the right path. You still believe in me and the fact that you can do it despite how much pain I cause you. It's amazing. I know it's not an easy thing, you know, to be able to share our story together. So I admire that you can do this. I love you, lady. I love you too, son. Sometimes what God is asking us to do is hard. Can you imagine how hard that was for Mary? But she felt like that was something that she needed to do to reconcile and to connect with O'Shea. And I, I think about uh, this, this fruit of a changed heart, and I, I, I think it is the Holy Spirit at work that, um, that sister schools, uh, that Terry, shared, ter- Terry and Melissa shared that story from sister schools this morning, right? Because sister schools is actually the fruit of a changed heart and life, right? Sister schools and all of the work they've done over the last 30 years, that is a manifestation of what God did in Terry and Melissa's life being outwardly expressed around the world, right? And I think about Mary and O'Shea, and I think about the change that God did in their life that caused them to take an outward step towards one another. I think about my own story, how I had to take that step towards recovery to become a healthier person and have a healthy marriage. And I think about you this morning, and I want to ask you, I want to invite each one of you to ask God that question this morning as we worship, as we receive communion together, what should I do? And for some of you, when you ask that, it might, it might be just like what John asked of those tax collectors and those soldiers, just to change the way that you live out your faith at your job, in your classes at school, among your family and friends to show a life full of love for God and other people as you go about your daily life. Or it might be something more specific than that. For some of you, God might have already placed something on your heart this morning. You might say, God, I can't do that. That is impossible. There is no way I can, I, 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 I can do what you're asking of me. And I want to encourage you, you, you can do it. God promises that that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in our hearts and lives. So know that you are not alone. God will be with you as you take that next step. And I want to encourage you, sometimes what you need to do is invite someone to go on that journey with you. And the only way that you can start that journey towards healing or towards moving in the direction that God has asked you is if you are honest and share with somebody else and they can walk with you as the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and in your life. Maybe there's a wound that you're dealing with and it just hasn't healed and God is asking you to go deep to find healing for that wound. Or maybe there is an addiction or a broken relationship in your life. Maybe there is someone in your life that God is inviting you to love that you don't want to love. Or maybe there is someone in your life that God is asking you to forgive, but you don't want to forgive them. God might be asking you to do something hard this morning 
So as we draw to the Lord's table and we receive the blood and the body of Jesus, I invite you to ask that question of God, what should I do? Let me pray for us.